Hey, good morning. Is it a gorgeous morning or what? It is fantastic out there today. Just beautiful. How does one get into the kingdom of God? How is that? And who gets into the kingdom of God? Well, as we continue on in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to have to recall what the context is. It's the kingdom of God, remember? last several weeks we've been talking about the kingdom of God. It actually started in uh, chapter 17, verse 20. Um, Luke 17, 20 says, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, that he kind of explained the inner kingdom. They needed to get that first before they even think about getting into the physical kingdom which is what they were looking for. But they were not born again. So anyway, he uh, really told them that the kingdom was amongst them, was right there. It was Christ. And so then he turned to the disciples and said, I want to tell you something. When I do come back, every eye will see me. Everybody will know that it is me. You know, just like the lightning flashes from one end of the sky to the other, Everybody will see this great glorious God come back. So uh, we took time to deal with that. And then last week, we talked about the parable of the unjust judge. And the one who came to him, the widow, kept begging. It was about prayer. But it was prayer dealing with the kingdom. Because the disciples, as he turned to them, he's telling them, you know, between the time that I ascend, basically, and the kingdom that will be coming, you're going to go through some things. And it will be persecution. Really is what it's about. And so he tells them these kind of things. It's going to be like as in the days of Noah, as in the days of, of Lot. So you remember when we talked about that? And he says, don't get discouraged. Keep praying. Whenever you really want me to come back physically, and I'm not back. Keep praying. Never give up. Remember that? That's what we talked about last week. Never give up. Keep praying. So, the theme of prayer and the kingdom of God will now continue as we are going to be in our text today starting at uh, chapter 18, verse 9. And it's dealing with how one gets into the kingdom Of course, prayer is a major theme here, as it was last week. The kingdom is a major theme here because it's how do they get in. There is a wrong approach. There is a right approach. Which one is correct? And so that's what he's going to do. Do you see how preaching through the Word of God, verse by verse, in an expository way, makes things come together? It's not just throwing out a thing here. Oh, I think I'll talk about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, just out of nowhere. No, he is illustrating what he's been talking about and says, okay, you're talking about kingdom? This is how you get in. Who's qualified? Who is acceptable to God in the kingdom? Jesus answers that question right here today. Uh, prayer is at the heart of this parable. Two men demonstrate what Jesus is saying in this story. And it's how one does not approach God and how one does approach God. Most people today, including many, quote, Christians, think that the right way to approach God is to present their good works to Him, just like, remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain brought his fruit to God. Of course, Abel was to bring the sacrifice that was to point to what the true sacrifice would be, and it was a it was dealing with blood. And so he had nothing to present. Nobody has anything to present except for what God gives us, and it's really the blood, the blood of Christ. If you were to ask any of the other religions in the world, the world religions, what it takes to get into heaven or nirvana or whatever you want to call it, what it is, it's going to be totally opposite and not correct. A 
according to what Jesus said. All other religions are wrong. Boy, that is really dogmatic, isn't it? Yes, we can be because Jesus said what? I am the only one. There are no other, no matter how good they are. You can say, yeah, but you'll understand they're, they're really good people. Oh, really? Are they really good, right? Of course, that's what the Reformation was about. Because there were a lot of people that thought they were good as they did their religious duties. And if you were to talk to most Protestants today, even Protestants, a good 60-70% would say that is God is satisfied if a person lives the best life that he can. As long as he tries, then he will get in. The main emphasis of the Gospel they would say, is on God's rules for right living. That's not right, is it? But here were Abraham's descendants who were expecting to get into the kingdom of God. If anybody was getting in, they were. And they were a notch above all others. Pharisees were at the highest. They would be accepted into heaven. But Jesus comes along and upends that turns the tables as he brings forth this parable. He turns it upside down in the way that they understand things. So, we call it the right way to approach God as we look at this today. Let's turn to our text in Luke 18. Let's stand. It's another parable that Jesus is teaching with. And he told this parable some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up in the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this Tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, may we honor you today as we glean precious truths from this parable that Jesus told the people that were standing around. They got to hear the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom and what it takes, what it doesn't take, who gets in and who doesn't. So Lord, help us be guided into this precious truth today. Help us understand you a little more. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, we got the parable. We had a parable last week. Last week, the parable started off with a purpose. Told it right out. Didn't say it at the end. Told it right up front. Uh, If you were to look in chapter 18, verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable. Why? To show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. Pray, don't give up. Until Christ comes back. Right? Prayer, the kingdom. Now he says... In this next parable, and he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. This time we get another purpose. Right up front, there's no guessing games here. He just says this is for the people who think they're righteous. And they look down upon others. So first of all, the audience is who? Well, actually... It's everybody who thinks that they can get to heaven by saying they're good enough. 
or they trust in themselves, we find out. So, you know, they can have moral aspects to their life. They can be very religious and yet not be in the kingdom. The purpose is to tell these kind of people that they're not right. Uh, chapter 16, verse 15 Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. You are those who make yourselves righteous in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. So there we go. We get the idea. It's a comprehensive audience. It's really the whole world that He's speaking of today, even. All of them. All the religions. And every religion. There's only one way. There's only two possibilities in the world. Either you can be good enough to get there, or you can't. Either you're good enough, or you can't be good enough ever. That's the two ways. Only two. No in-betweens. So, it's for people who trust in their righteousness. It's for people who look down upon others. Two men. Two men prayed this day, as Jesus speaks about. One is a regular temple goer, or let's say a church goer. He's gone to church all of his life. He goes every week. Matter of fact, he's very devoted. He's very religious. That's the first man. And I would say, well, that sounds like a guy that ought to be going into the kingdom. The second one is this tax collector. He's selfish. He's dishonest. He's greedy. He's a man who rips off people. Collecting the taxes. He gets the money that goes to the Roman government and anything else that he can collect above that is his. You become very rich. Zacchaeus was very rich. And Jesus showed who he really was and he brought him into the kingdom. An unlikely savory character, really. So out of those two, though, which would most people think that they're going into the kingdom? The churchgoer, right? He's the one that's going. Well, here's what's happening. You want to get the behind the scenes? It's not told in this parable, but here's what happens every day to the Jewish person who lives in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. They have the temple, right? They have sacrifices how many times a day? Twice. You have the morning offering. You have the evening offering. Nine o'clock in the morning. Three o'clock in the morning. You go there realizing that there is a burnt offering. That's a sacrifice. There is a, a sin offering. It's atonement for the sins of the people. It's a covering of their sins. Representing what Christ is eventually going to do as He takes sin away. But this is an atonement it covers for that time. And also at that time, uh, at the temple, there would be a priestly blessing that would be given. And it's dealing with the altar of, or the incense that goes up. And that's representing prayer goes to God, it's where God is pleased and the priest then blesses all the people there that have had that experience of sins being covered. So there they are, these two men. Pharisee, tax collector. They ascend to the temple. And so they get up there and it says they go to pray. And really the word there is simply means to worship. Not only just praying, you know, but it's a part of of worship. That's why they're there. They go up there to express adoration. Sacrifice is being done. It's offered, and they want the sacrifice to apply to them. Would you not have wanted that too? You want that sacrifice to apply to you. So there they are. They want the benefits of atonement. They want to get their sins covered, don't they? And it's a constant thing. It's every day. And then they have the feasts and festivals. 
just goes on all the time. A, a continual sacrificial uh, offering is made. Of course, we know Jesus is the one-time offering, and there's no need for those sacrifices anymore. It is finished. He sat down, and He's at the right hand of the Father. It's been done. But all of this was symbolic, and by the time that the sacrifice would be done, they would join, now the people would, these prayers, these worshipers, with the symbolic incense where God is pleased with the sacrifice and the sin has been atoned for and then prayer is offered to God. That's the pattern, isn't it? Until your sin is atoned for, your prayers don't get to God, do they? Your sin has to be atoned for. So they go to pray to receive the blessing as they participate in the ceremony. So there they are worshiping, there they are praying. So you get that idea. Do we have the purpose of the parable now done? Do we have that there? It's right there in our, in our verse 9. Okay. The second section is the wrong way to approach God. We don't start with the right way. We see the wrong way. And that's where most people are at today. The way to approach God is by some kind of good actions or doing something... Pharisee says here in verse 10, it says two men went up into the temple to pray. We already explained that with that background of the temple, right? One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, and anybody that was anybody. If you were a Jew, you'd say Pharisee is righteous and the tax collector is not. But at this time, I mean, that's a good evaluation, but it's only looking at the outside, isn't it? The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. So he stood. He said, what's what's standing? You know, you can prostrate yourself. You can stand. You can sit. You do whatever you want. Really, when you pray, there's not one way it's going to make one holier or not. But here's the way that it was typically. They would stand in this sense, especially at the temple here. And that was typical. Um, it's legitimate. They would be looking up to God and then they have their hands spread out up to God to pray with uplifted hands. You know, Paul said it to Timothy that holy men are to pray with uplifted hands. Really, it is being set apart by God. You are clean. You are holy. That's the idea of holy hands and lifting up, no, no, you don't necessarily have to do that to pray to God. There's no one particular gesture. But the idea is to be open-faced before God because you have a right relationship with Him. And that's what Paul meant. But that was a picture of what they did to offer up their praise. The Pharisee always would pray. Pharisees would always be visible to the people when they were out and about, especially at the temple. Um, Matthew 6.5 says they love to take the place of prayer in public view and stand where everyone could see them. It's made known that these guys are really religious. What did the public think of that? All those hypocrites? No. They were, you know, kind of like, these guys are holier than us. They're up there, man. <laughs> They've got it together religiously. They respected them highly. Well, it says here that the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Now look, back up in verse 9. He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves. You know what? Pharisee's not trusting in God. He doesn't need to do that. He trusts in himself. How many people do you know who trust in themselves? Going through this life, thinking whatever happens after this life, if this is all there is, and that's okay. I'll never know anyway, right? Or, I've probably been, I think I'm good enough. Just, you know, just damn. They're trusting in themselves, aren't they? Boy, are they out there. 
John Calvin draws the line this way. Every man that is puffed up with self-confidence carries on open war with God to whom we cannot be reconciled in any other way than by denial of ourselves. That is, by laying aside all confidence in our own virtue and righteousness and relying on His mercy alone. So let's go to the doctrine that supports that. Paul's doctrine, which is God's doctrine. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's all God, isn't it? Let's go to Matthew 5, verse 20, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, does that mean that the scribes and the Pharisees are going into heaven? No. Matter of fact, it's saying it has to surpass them. Unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that pretty well leaves a lot of people out, doesn't it? The religious elite. Go to uh, verse 48, I do believe it is. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, you want to get to heaven. Okay. I bet you everybody would always say, well, I'm not perfect. I mean, have you ever heard anybody say, I am perfect? And I have never, ever done anything wrong. Do you know of anybody that would say that? They're perfect. <laughs> uh, Tony just blew my illustration. <laughs> well, at, at, at what? Well, I'm thinking. Okay, it wouldn't take very long. It'd take about like about ten seconds to show that they're not. But they, actually, I guess there are people that think they are perfect. Now, the problem is, is this is where everybody has to be. They, to get into heaven, you have to be perfect. How are we going to get into heaven? Because we can't be perfect. Nobody's ever been perfect. Never will be. It's only through Christ. It's His perfection, His perfect life that He lived with His sacrifice that paid for our sins. That is perfect. And one day we will be perfect. We will be glorified. There will never be a sin that will do from here on everlasting to everlasting to everlasting to everlasting. Now that's great to know, isn't it? Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And we look at Paul again in his theology. And we see exactly what Jesus says, Paul says. You know, the Word of God always agrees with itself. And this is one time I can say always. There's never any disagreement from one passage to another. Even though it can look like there are problems, it's problematic, that doesn't mean that it doesn't correlate. We just have these puny minds that have to see what a high holy God is saying. So Romans 3.20 says what? Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Nobody can be justified. So there's the answer to the person that would dare say that he is perfect. Nobody, no flesh is justified in God's sight by the works of the law. If you want run one stop sign or go one mile over the speed limit, you have what? Broken the law. Okay. The law really there is to do what? To show that we are sinners. That's the law. Those people don't know the law, then, do they? So, 
Jesus says that he, this man here, as we go back to Luke, it's interesting. Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Now, in one sense, this means as he's praying to himself, it's like saying he's not praying for, you know, it's not a public prayer where everybody is there listening to this man pray, right? This is a private prayer, individual. But in another sense, and I think even rightly so, even more, in fact, he was praying to himself and not to God. Because the man is not a believer and his prayer does not go to God. He's praying to himself because he is God. He is righteous. He doesn't need God except for his own little self-satisfaction. In fact, it says here once he mentions God. Five times he mentions I. Now look at this. Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, now watch. I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He's telling his righteousness how he's not like bad men. That's what he's saying to himself. Now, if his prayer is really truthful, if he, he, he's a moral man, isn't he? Uh, I wouldn't doubt the fact that he might have been moral in the way that the world defines it. Um, I'm not like other people, swindlers. I'm honest. I'm not a crook. I don't cheat people. Right? In business, I'm not a swindler. And then he says, I'm not unjust. I treat people fairly. Okay. You've known unbelievers that do that, don't you? Adulterer. I am not an adulterer. I'm faithful to my wife. I've never had any adultery. Or even like the tax collector. I'm not, even, I'm not like him at all who's greedy and selfish. One who, you know, the tax collector is a bad name. The publicans. Well, you know what? People would say, pick the Pharisee. <laughs> you know, who's making the right approach? Well, it sure looks, I, and I got to feel the majority of people today would say, who? The Pharisee. It's obvious. He's trusting in his own goodness. Then it said that. Um, in verse 9, he told this parable to some people who trusted themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. To look down upon others, to be better than them. Well, why are you in the king? Why, why were you elect? Well, because I chose God. Well, then are you better than your neighbor? Well, no, I wouldn't say that. I'm not better. Well, are, are you smarter than them? Well, you know. Yeah, I really probably. But he'd say, well, no, not really. Well, okay, why did you choose God and this guy over here doesn't choose God? What, what, what's the difference? Well, that's where the, this pride comes in. And so, you know, he says, I'm not like other people. Um, he's really boasting on himself. This is self-exaltation, isn't it? This is absolute pride. Okay, take myself. I thank the Lord. I came from a home that's godly. I respected my parents. To this day, I still do. They took me to church. I was there every Sunday. Sometimes Sunday nights, all through the week, when they had to have revivals in the spring and the fall. For two weeks, I went to church. Went to Sunday school. Read my Bible once a week, Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And but anyway, um, let's take all of those things. You know, there's the religiosity. I've never really done anything that's really bad. I'm not a drug addict. I never drank. No drugs. 
what a blessing it has been. It's not because of how good I am. Matter of fact, God had to show me that my heart is just as corrupt as that of the worst criminal that you can think of that's on earth. It's my heart. That's the way I have to see it. Before I came to Christ, you'd say, yeah, but people did a lot of worse things, but I'm in the same condition that they are in. I've got a corrupt heart. A dead man is a dead man. There's degrees of corruption of a body when it dies, right? But dead is dead. Whether you die, somebody died 10 seconds ago or whether they died 10 days ago. And so, the thing is, it's the same corrupt heart. If I thought that somehow that I was better than others, I was probably trusting in my own good works. Matter of fact, that was the case. Because I was good. How did I ever measure goodness? People told me I was good. I didn't get into trouble. I think I went to the principal's office one time. It's because I had a pencil in the back of my pocket. And whenever I rode the bus, that pencil evidently poked a hole in the seat. Somebody told on me and I uh, wound up going to... I'm thinking, what am I doing in here? Whoa. So, but we could tell on each other on a lot of things then. If we really wanted to get honest, all the times that I did not obey my parents. But you know what? Trusting in my goodness. God had to show me that I was just as evil and wicked as any person has ever lived. Because we like to think, well, I'm not like those other people. Don't ever say that, people. You're in the same boat, in the same condition as anybody else. It's only by the grace of God that you are in the position that you are now. And it didn't have to do anything with your intelligence, your smartness, your being better than your neighbor. You're just in the same boat except the grace of God is what makes the huge eternal difference. So what's a guy do? He compares himself to others, swindlers, immoral people, greedy rip-off artists. How about... You know, that's easy to compare to people who are not so good, people who obviously are bad, and we can say, well, you know, I haven't, what, stolen anything. I haven't killed anybody. Everybody uses that one. So what they do is they take the lowest standard they can do and compare themselves. And guess what? They're better than them. And what does that make them? I'm okay. I must be good. That's what good is. So easily people can compare themselves to others. How about if you compared yourself to somebody that was much higher than you, like Christ. Well, of course, I can't compare myself to Him. Well, that's the idea, isn't it? They never compare themselves to God and the splendor of His absolute perfection in His holiness. That's how we have to compare. That's why God said... Be ye perfect, for I am perfect. I will not let anybody into my kingdom unless they're perfect. Jesus will go on later to show what perfect is. It's Him. Only Him. We have to be found in Him. That's the idea. So, Pharisee looks at things outwardly. His good deeds, his fasting, his giving... As he talks about, he's you know he's not looking at his heart; he's looking at the things that he does, which must be really good. So, did uh, do we think do things to please God or to get the applause of men? So there is the wrong way to approach God. We just saw it: somebody who looked really good, but he approached absolutely wrong. Black and white. Now you go to the second one, the right way, point number three, the right way to approach God. The tax 
collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Wow. He couldn't even come as far into the temple as the Pharisee. He's standing a distance away. He's a tax collector. Proud Pharisee actually stood as close as you could get into that temple. But he stood at some distance. That's what it says there, doesn't it? He was unwilling to lift up his eyes because he knew he was unworthy as he's at the temple. And he beat his breast. What's going on there? He's showing his true sorrow for what he has done and who he is. He's repentant. Beats the chest. Oh, woe is me. He didn't promise things to God that He would be different in the future. God, if you change me right now, I'll do this and I'll do that. God, you know, there's some good things about me and I think there are more good things than bad things. You know, God, look at that. He doesn't say anything like that, does He? He didn't make any promises. He just says that He's an unworthy sinner. He has no basis, no merit in laying hold of God. And what does He ask for? Mercy. That means don't give me what I deserve. It begs because it knows that I'm guilty. I left chance by myself. He cries for mercy. This is the only way that any of us can come to God begging for mercy. Who are we anyway? Nobody. We're less than nobodies. Here we are. It's by His mercy. Go to Matthew 15, verse 19 and 20. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. You know what? I think this tax collector was involved with all of this kind of sin. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Jesus states, you know, the outward things. That doesn't defile you. We're talking the heart here. This man knew what was in him. And it wasn't pretty. It was ugly. It was corrupt. 1 Timothy 1.15 It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save Sinners, among whom I, Paul, am foremost of all. This is also us. Don't ever go around saying, "Yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm good." You know, I don't do those kind of things. Shame on you. Shame. What's in your heart? He came here to do what? To save sinners. That's what we always were. Corrupt. Evil, wicked sinners. Look in now in Ephesians 2. See a glorious, positive statement about who we are. Now, when we were children of wrath, God says this, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead, dead in our sins, in our transgressions made us alive together. We were dead. How can a dead man reach up to a rope and save himself? 
You've heard of that illustration? A man who's drowned, but he can actually you know, go for the rope and climb on up it and get on out. That's a horrible illustration because a dead man can't do that. This man has already sunk and he has drowned. God did this when we were dead. Wow. That's mercy, isn't it? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what this man needs. Now, as a Christian, we're talking about salvation, but as a Christian, as you grow in the Christian life, there's a direction that you're going. A direction the way the Word of God says. Keep going that way. No turning back. What God does show you in your walk is the utter sinfulness of your heart as you are a Christian. Charles Simeon observed this. Never are you higher in God's esteem. You know what's the next phrase? Than when you are lowest in your own. Forget yourself. But but, but, but you don't know what I'm going through. Forget yourself. Deny yourself. Now you die daily. We died at salvation. But it's an ongoing daily dying. The death of that flesh. Right? That's the idea. That's when we become higher in God's esteem in that sense. When you become low in your own, you realize that there's no value in and of yourself, but then you see the great position that He's put you in as it was His great mercy, it was His great love, and it was His great grace that saved us and put us into the heavenlies. We, we had a great lesson, you guys, on Tuesday night. Ephesians, uh, Colossians chapter 3. And if you, didn't, if you weren't there... Go on the website and and look at that. And I'm not saying that was a a great teaching method that I put out. I'm just saying the text is high and holy and you missed out. But it's there. If you can't get to here, you've got it there. Study with us. Do you guys like to see the Tuesday night Bible study continue? Would you guys like to continue with our Sunday worship? Put full effort into it. What is keeping us from knowing this great God who wants to take us out of these doldrums? It lifts us high up into the heavenlies. If then you have been raised up with Christ who is seated at the right hand of God, that's where we draw everything from. He is seated in majesty and all the blessings are there. Come get them. That's right here. So you go from the lowest where you see yourself and then you see Christ seated in the heavenlies and you go to the highest. We're not preaching stay down. Come on, you ugly sinner. Come on, you terrible, awful person. You know, just see. If we, if, if we had that, we would have no hope. Our hope is the sin has been taken care of. Why are you lying in the doldrums? Get up. Look at God. Seated in the heavens as you are seated in the heavens. Get up! Get up, sinner! Wake up, oh sinner! Wake up, oh sleeper! Now he's pleading for mercy. And he doesn't lump himself in with other people or the nation of Israel. He didn't assume that he would get into heaven by the group plan. He knows that he's done. He's done for. He did know that the shedding, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's why He's there at the temple. And that's why He's praying, not to Himself, but to God. And He's saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, we're getting to some great doctrine here, folks. You ready? What's the difference between the two men? Repentance. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
What did John the Baptist say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's salvation. But it's an ongoing repentance and confession in our Christian life, isn't it? Otherwise, we hold on to it and we just we feel guilty. It's there and we just keep holding on to it. And he says, bring it to me and I'll cast it out of here. It's done. Right? Don't dwell on it. Get rid of it. Mean it. Repent. Confess. You know what the word here means to be merciful? Okay, a great doctrinal term. And if it's not, you're not familiar with it, that's okay. But you've got it today. Propitiation. Can we all say that? Propitiation. Just for good way to say it is propitiation. You say, what is that? What is that? The idea is it's referring to God's wrath. Being appeased because the proper penalty has been paid. God is satisfied with what His Son did in paying for your sins. God says, I'm satisfied. I'm appeased with that. That's propitiation. It was pictured in the atonement sacrifices in the Judaic system. It was pictured. In reality, here it is. So what's that word? Propitiation. Big word. It's actually a biblical term. Let's go to Hebrews 2.17. Sounds like a seminary word. Well, do that because it hits at the doctrine of what salvation is. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore He, Christ, had to be made like His brethren. He came down to this earth being like us in the flesh in all things so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He takes us to God. That's what a priest does. In things pertaining to God, here we go, to make propitiation for the sins of of the people. The holy, high God who is perfect in all ways is now appeased or propitiated. He is now satisfied when He sees you. When He sees me, He sees His righteousness. Praise God. He doesn't see that wicked horrible sinner that you once were. What does He see you? He sees you in Christ. And He wants to make you more and more and more and more like Him till one day you will be like Him. Forgiveness of sins. There had to be a substitutionary atonement. Propitiation. Atonement. Sins are taken away. We are forgiven. We're taking some key theological terms here out of this text today. Have you noticed this? These are valuable. So propitiation is dealing with the satisfaction of God. His wrath has been satisfied because of what Christ did and paying for the penalty because of your sins. There's another word. We go back to Luke 18 as we near the end of this. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And here's the result. Up to this time, I think people still would say, that wicked sinner. What right does he have even to get up there at the temple? Or close to it. Jesus says this. And whatever Jesus says, I tell you. He's telling it to us too. He's saying, listen to this. This is going to make your jaw drop. Now, we're so used to this. We've read this many times. I already know the answer. But this just turns the tables on everybody. I tell you, this man went to his house justified. Just like the Pharisee? No. Rather than the other, which is the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Who's that? The Pharisee. But the one who humbles himself, who's that? It's this man who was humbled said, be merciful to me. He will be exalted. If you've trusted in Christ, you know He's already lifted you up. You've died with Him. 
you raised up together with Him, and you sit together with Him in the heavenlies. And you do that by pursuing Him. Pursuing Christ. Jesus said that He's justified. This man went to his house justified. You know what? Another high, high theological term in Reformation theology, and really it should be just straight out biblical theology. Justification. To justify means that God bangs the gavel of His judgment bench and declares not guilty. That's what happens. Not only that, not only does He remove the guilt, what else does He do? He puts in the righteousness of Christ. What do we call that? The great exchange. Two things happen. Not only do your sin, sins go, and you could be just forgiven, but no, He brings in the righteousness of Christ in on you. What an exchange. This is justification. It means to declare one righteous. It's a declaration by God. You are justified. That's where salvation starts, when you're justified. This man went into that temple area guilty. As guilty as could be. Tax collector. He ripped off people. It was greedy. He was a man that nobody in this room would care to hang around with. He wouldn't like this guy at all. And he walked out of that temple with the righteousness of Christ standing before God. He received a righteousness not his own. Are you ready for another theological seminary term? But it's really biblical. It was reckoned to him or imputed. Imputed. It's like in a bank. You have an account there. All your money has been withdrawn. And you know you can't write a check on it. Somebody comes to the bank, deposits money in your account. You didn't do it. Now it's accounted to you, no matter who brought that there. It wasn't you. It doesn't matter. It's there. Now you are accounted as righteous. It was imputed to you. It's a banking term. It means a transfer, transferring righteousness into my account. The righteousness of Christ. It's a passive participle, which means it's a permanent state of justification. It has been done. It's permanent. You cannot lose justification because it's been done. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He just did it with this man. Now we come to the fifth one. And I saw this text. I said, what am I going to do with this next week? It doesn't fit in with the next text the way I'd like for it to flow. I'm sure it does, but and it does. But I'm just going to tie this in real quick like. Because it is perfect. And they were bringing even their babies to Him so that He would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them, the children. Jesus called, and the parents were there, but Jesus called for them saying, Permit the children to come to Me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, or but I say to you, right? I tell you, this is the way humans think, but I tell you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. If you don't have that same thought, the way that a child has, and the way that uh, representing what they are, you know, Luke here sees a topical connection. Do you see the connection? 
took me a little while and I said, oh, well, yeah, it's, it's, he's just given an illustration here again. He said the parable and now the illustration is actually something, this is a living action that happens that explains the parable. It's, it's like this. You have to be like a child. What do, you, what do you mean a child? Well, the disciples come in there. They, they want to help Jesus. So they intervene and they stop the, the little kids from coming up there. And they're thinking important people should be the ones that are coming here. You know, Jesus is healing people. He's preaching the Word of God. And He doesn't have any time for those kids. You know, they're not important now. They will be when they get older, but not right now. Uh, that's a rebuke that they had. The disciples had. Jesus rebukes them. Disciples have been saying, in effect, that there was no room in the kingdom for children. Jesus turns the tables right on the disciples here. There's no room in the kingdom for anything but children. That's the only people He's going to accept. Children. I know what you're thinking. What? Kids? That's if you didn't trust Christ when you were a kid, you're not going into heaven, right? No, 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 no. You know, kids pretty well accept things real easily. I must admit, it's hard for me to accept a gift from somebody. So I'm thinking, you went out of your way to do it. You know, you know, don't. You know, you worked hard for that. You know, you know, I don't want. You know, I know I don't deserve it. That's what the idea of a gift is. You don't deserve it, but I'm giving it to you anyway. Uh, it is. you know. Uh, but have you ever seen a kid at Christmas? His parents want to give him a gift? No difficulty whatsoever in accepting that gift. <laughs> I'll take it. You enter in the kingdom realizing that you are unrighteous and you are in the need of grace. And God gives you grace. You enter it through taking on the quality of a child because you're absolutely dependent upon God in everything to get there. Because you know you can't get there. You know that you need His mercy. So you have a trust that a child has. They have to trust their parents for clothing, for food, for a house they live in. Whatever they do, everything they depend upon. You're my everything, right? You know, the absolute powerlessness that a baby has. Well, I don't know. Some of you might disagree with that because you know, they start crying. They have pretty good power to get that milk or whatever, you know, diapers changed. But you see what, you know what I'm saying. And they're teachable. The mind and soul of a child is like a sponge. They soak up everything. Matter of fact, I've been told the first six years of your life, you learn the greatest percentage of what you're going to learn for your whole life. I mean, you've learned how to, to walk and talk and do the most basic things that you have to have to be able to think about all the things that you learn. You learn how to read and, and write and all of that just within the first few years. It's because they're like a sponge. They're ready to soak up knowledge. Okay. To whom does the kingdom belong? It belongs to the lowly, the humble, like a child who is totally dependent. Jesus looked at the disciples with their sophistication that they had hanging around here, all the doctrinal knowledge that they had picked up. And He pointed to these children. He said, You need to be like them. That's the only way you're going to get into the kingdom. Absolute humbleness. What an illustration that that was as he took a real incident now based off that parable that we just talked about. And he really boiled it down to everything right there with that child. So that's why we went there. Kids don't, they don't have any achievements enough to be able to, you know, be anywhere, you know, to do whatever. Here it is. The parable and the children gives us a picture. Faith is just like the simple, the helpless, trusting, absolutely dependent. There's no other resources. 
No resources of our own. It's all God. Mercy, grace. That's how you get into the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, great God, awesome indeed to give us a picture of what it is to get into the grand eternal kingdom that we all long for, that we wait for. We're anxious, Lord, to get into that kingdom in a physical way. But You have already transferred us spiritually into the kingdom of Your Son. Thank You for the light that You have given to us in the dark world that we were in. Thank You for Your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That has prepared us now for to take the Lord's Supper. Think about these words as you're saying them. And as we get into the song, the song says, come to the table. Our invitation is come to the table. As we're getting ready, you go to God and you pray and you confess your sins and be ready to partake of the elements that represent the forgiveness that is given to us, our redemption.